Hello and welcome back to Oro Valley Catholic. This is Father John Arnold. Do you know Harry Potter is one of the most popular series published in English in, well, at least last half century in the beginning of this century. It uh, spawned a huge uh, movie franchise where they basically took all of the books and turned them into these very popular movies. And some were better than others, but all of them told this story. The big complaint that some Christians had was that Harry Potter centered around the practice of magic, because magic is contrary to the gospel. The idea that you use the powers of the human person to control the powers of nature for the purposes that you ascribe. But you know, in, if you just leave magic with that description, it's really not much different than the methodology of science, where you try to dominate nature to use it for human well-being. But what makes the Harry Potter story pop isn't the magic, but it's the clash between good and evil. God is never mentioned in the entire series of Harry Potter novels, but oh, he's there and big time. And how do you know that? Because as you watch it, you recognize that Harry and his friends are struggling with the nature of the good and how to live the good. And Lord Voldemort and his Death Eaters, these are definitely satanic figures. And how Harry and his friends operate is very different from how Lord Voldemort and his subjects operate. Because at the heart of it is what the difference between friendship and domination between encouragement and building relationship and bullying and, and just pushing people into submission. That clearly is the dynamic because something's being said about the right order of human relationships. Do you want to look, live in a world where you live in this Hogwarts castle, you have real friends, you have conflicts that you have to work through, but there's Professor Dumbledore at the head of things and he's a gentle, loving person, that there's room for this conflict to happen and people to figure out um, their, their way forward in, uh, in, uh, with conflicting ideas between, uh, say, say uh, Slytherin and the other houses, right? Um, that very much is a Christian worldview because Voldemort obviously works very secretively. Um, he's trying to undermine, and he has spies in Hogwarts. Um, but they're all very loyal to, uh, to Mr. Uh, Voldemort, formerly Thomas Riddle, um, because if not, um, they won't get their reward or they'll be destroyed by the, this Lord of Darkness. Well, these are both images of human relationship. One, Harry and his friends are much more favorable or conducive to fan loyalty because there's something much more human about it. Domination by Lord Voldemort, not so much. In the gospel for the 23rd Sunday, it's about friendship in the church, conflict in the church, what discipleship looks like in the church, and it follows on the heels of Jesus talking about St. Peter being the rock in the church with the power to bind and loosen power. How is it exercised in the church? 
And so let's take a time and talk about the gospel and why it's a particularly prescient gospel uh, for our own present age. Why is chapter 18 of Matthew's gospel about conflict in the church a very timely and topical uh, gospel? It's because in October is going to be the third year of Pope Francis's initiative, what is being called the Synod on Synodality. Do you remember three years ago, we had meetings at St. Mark. There were meetings throughout the church in America and in the world. Then the next year was amongst the bishops uh, and na national meetings about what each country's concerns were. And now all of these countries' concerns with all of these Catholics being brought to Rome and what's happening, bishops are going to be there, religious are going to be there, uh, laymen and laywomen, religious uh, women and religious men are going to be there. It's an unusual synod because of the inclusion of lay people. Lay people have attended other councils, but now they're voting members. And so this has created a controversy among some of the more um, fearful voices, I would say. They consider themselves uh conservative, but I, I, I'm not sure that that's a really true understanding of what co uh, a conservative perspective is, but I'll leave that for another time. But the, the idea of what sets up the fear is that in Germany, they've been having a synodal path which has been directly confronting um, the Catholic communion uh, worldwide on issues of um, sacramental marriage for gay and lesbian men in the church, ordination of women, and that the general criticism of the German synodal path is that it has been hijacked by lay people and uh, are trying to force on the church in Germany and apparently the universal church, according to some, um, these teachings which are really at odds with the traditions of the Catholic church. So you can't say that conservative voices uh, aren't getting their bunch, uh, punch, their buttons pushed by the Germans who have pushed plenty of buttons before in various directions. This is something is about the German character. They take every idea and they can take it to extremes. Um, but Pope Francis has confronted that. He sent papal envoys to them. He's asked them to backtrack on all of these things uh, because it's an exercise of his authority that was originally given to St. Peter for discipline in the church. But I wanted to remind you of this because I know some St. Mark parishioners are very concerned about this. And so uh, what a wonderful time to contemplate chapter 18 of the Gospel of Matthew and how it is that order is pursued in the church, which is a communion of saintly friends. As, uh, avoided, as opposed to simply Lord Voldemort um, uh, dominating others. It's all how you have conversations. But even if you listen carefully to the gospel, there's an end point. At some point, you've separated yourself from the community. And the work of the church's authority is simply to confirm the decisions you've made. So let's talk about chapter 18 because it gives us a biblical framework to consider these modern topics. The Gospel for the 23rd Sunday of Ordinary Time is about dealing with conflict in the church 
and it occurs within the context of our Lord's discourse on the nature of the church. You might remember that the Gospel of Matthew is built around various uh, discourses. There's the Sermon on the Mount, there's the disciple uh, discourse about going out, there's the discourse on the church. Um, And so it's these teachings, and there's five of them, just like there's five books in the Torah. And so in chapter 18, Matthew is uh, relating our Lord's teaching on the nature of the church. And to give you kind of the context of this story about conflict in the church, um, it starts with uh, a teaching about who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And remember, we're not supposed to lord it over one another like they do out in the secular world or in the world of the Roman Empire. Instead, the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, according to uh, verses 1 through 5 of chapter 18 of Matthew's gospel, is the one who humbles himself like a little child and serves the rest. And then uh, the problem of temptation to sin. And what he means is, what happens when the community's a scandal and causes one of these other ones to sin? Uh, or maybe it could be in the church when people in church authority lure people into sin. Um, and Jesus says, it's, if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter into life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into fiery Gehenna. So humility and then the responsibility of people in leadership in the church. But it's, uh, it's, the tension is of the parable of the lost sheep, which is the very next story. It's uh, obviously about mercy in the church and how do you bring back um, people who belong to the fold of Christ but has wandered away. And it says, don't despise these little ones um, that... Uh, that in that you go out and you seek them out <clears throat> and then it talks about the gospel for today is about a brother who sins if your brother sins against you go and tell him his fault between you and him alone if he listens to you you've won over your brother if he does not listen take one or two others along with you so that every fact may be established on the testimony of two or three witnesses If he refuses to listen to them, tell the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, then treat him as you would a Gentile or a tax collector. Amen, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, amen, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything for which they are to pray, it shall be granted to them by my heavenly Father. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, There am I in the midst of them. And then the very next parable to close out chapter 18 is the parable of the unforgiving servant. So what if you are uh, the servant who gets all of this forgiveness from God, but you turn around and uh, you're merciless with your fellow servants? It's going to be hard on you. So, you know, if you look at the entirety of chapter 18, it's be humble. Seek out the lost, bind up the wounded. But there is a limit uh, because of the needs of the community. 
that there are certain things that can't be tolerated. So how is it that you deal with that which can't be tolerated? You go personally to talk to them. If they won't listen to what you have to say, you get two or three witnesses because this is how ancient Israel worked. Remember, um, nothing can be established except on the testimony of multiple witnesses. So it's never me against whoever. Uh, it's uh, the community. And if it doesn't work at that level, then it says you go to the church. Because do you remember this whole discourse on the church follows Jesus telling St. Peter that he's the rock on which the church will be built. Um, he gives Peter the authority to bind and loosen. But that same language is repeated in chapter 18 and applies to all of the apostles. So it's not just Peter that's given authority, but it's this, this leadership that we think of as the apostolic succession, the uh, council of bishops, the order of bishops, uh, to provide <coughs> order within the church. And so if when you talk to them, it doesn't solve the problem. If multiple people talk to them, it doesn't solve the problem. Then you go to the church, which is the apostles, uh, and church authority to, uh, uh, solves the problem. If this person still does not respond according to verses 15 to 20 of uh, chapter 18, then uh, you treat him as a Gentile or a tax collector, which means he's outside the community and he becomes the lost sheep doesn't mean your duties towards him end because you're still trying for reconciliation. But if a person can't live at peace within the community and the order of the community, uh, then the community, for the sake of the community, needs to separate the person from the community. Uh, Jesus does this again when he sends his apostles out. And he says, when you go to a town and they won't receive the gospel, do you remember? He says, shake the dust of, off your feet and move on. Uh, it's friendship of God and the community of the faith cannot be imposed. It can only be proposed. And then obedience uh, to the voice of the shepherd is the generous gift of the disciple to the community. Um, but it prides the necessity of mercy uh, for that person. And so the parable of the unforgiving servant, which follows and closes up chapter 18. So what happens in the community when it gets very divided? Because you can tune in on social media and you will listen to, can listen to, self-described fervent Catholics talking about why this pope is trying to impose heresy on the entire community. On the other hand, you can listen to the Pope instructing these very same people uh, to just move on, uh, get over it. It's um, the fear and distrust that runs through the American Catholic Church. I don't know how much it translates into the rest of the world. Clearly, there is a group in, the, in Germany that's trying to take over the church and impose its will on the church. And the Pope has confronted them about it. That's been very public, that the synodal path in Germany has gotten way off the track. 
what's going to happen with that and how that's going to work out? Well, Germany's been a flashpoint for schism and heresy in the past. Um, but you can't claim that this pope isn't confronting it because he is. But if you look at the instructions in chapter 18, um, clearly it's against the will of our Savior that the Holy Father or any bishop goes from zero to 60 immediately. Um, that it's a process of watching how it unfolds. You send a papal envoy to them, and then you uh, uh, get multiple people to talk to them. And then at the end, if they persist in uh, refusing the discipline of the community, then I think uh, some disciplinary action will follow as for the German way, the German synodal path. But if the Holy Father is reacting to the German church like that, why would you suggest that he wants to impose the German way on the rest of the church? It just seems to me that's rather um, paranoid because it doesn't seem to comport with the facts. But it's very clear that some American Catholics are very distrustful of this pope going back to his opening a crack in the door for uh, people who have been divorced, remarried, and Francis has provided a way for them to come back to communion without necessarily their church, their marriage coming into the church, their second marriage come into the church. And you know, in, in the tribunal, uh, which I'm part of the tribunal, which is a part, uh, which partly is uh, an age resolving conflicts in the church. For instance, the tribunal, if there's complaints against a cleric, a priest, or a deacon, uh, the tribunal will uh, preside over that at the direction of the bishop. Uh, if there's a conflict in marriage about whether or not it's a valid sacramental marriage, this is what the tribunal does. But uh, what Pope Francis recognizes that the tribunal has not proven to be a particularly adequate way of dealing with conflict throughout the church. Well, just one example. If you look up online the number of annulments that come out of the United States of America, the number of marriage annulments is 60% of the total for the entire church on the planet. I think something like 1% 1.6% come out of Argentina. Is that because marriage is happy in the rest of the world or that America has, is a very wealthy nation, well-funded tribunals? It's also a nation that is very litigious. Um, other nations, not so much because even their judicial system is not quite developed in the same way that America has developed. I'm not sure that everything about our uh, litigious system is good. In fact, a lot of it is plainly not. But it certainly shows through in annulments. But what happens in Argentina when a woman is abandoned by her husband and told that if she ha uh, marries again to try to find a father for her children, uh, that she'll be precluded from ever coming to, uh, to communion, uh, when in fact it does not appear that they have a path to go through the tribunal. Um, so the Pope proposes a practical way of bringing people back to the Eucharistic table. Uh, yeah, and you have to understand in the light of all of this, and I've been doing this since 1983, that uh, this is what judges on the tribunal do. A man and a woman say, I do, I do, in front of a priest, and they appear to be validly married. Uh, ten years later, five years later, whatever, it doesn't work out. One person uh, complains that the other person never really entered into the marriage fully. 
Um, they said, I do, basically with their fingers crossed behind their back. Well, that's not a valid sacrament. Um, we aren't going to be manipulated by other people because of our faith. And the idea that someone would use a faithful Catholic's faith against them to manipulate them, um, you know, this isn't acceptable. Uh, so there are ways of resolving problems in the church. The tribunal is just one. But it's laid out according to chapter 18 of Matthew's gospel. Um, go to your brother. If that doesn't work, take two or three witnesses with you. If that doesn't work, then you go to the bishop. That's what uh, community order is in the church. And it is part and parcel of Jesus' teaching to um, uh, Peter, about Peter being the rock on which the church is built. Also about entrance into suffering, which is Jesus' Paschal mystery, which was the gospel last, last week. And so uh, it's interesting to me that I think this is the only place in the gospels where this passage about how uh, problems are being resolved uh, appears. But it's very clear that uh, Jesus uh, and Matthew's witness is that Jesus understood that there would be conflicts in, uh, in the church, and there had to be a, a, an orderly way of dealing with them. So why do we deal with, the, with a conflict this way? Um, let's take a moment and, um, and let's talk about that. Our Lord could have decided on a different, a more authoritative structure for the church. Um, he could have just uh, told St. Peter, whatever you say goes, uh, you make all the decisions. Uh, but that isn't what he said, and it's not how the church has operated. The Council of Jerusalem has Peter with all the apostles considering Paul's complaints about um, the, the, those in the church that would claim that Gentiles must first be circumcised before they're baptized. And that was a big issue in the early church. We don't even think about it so much anymore because once these matters are decided, basically the church over the centuries just moves on. And so, yes, there is some real controversy in America. I'm not sure how much in the rest of the world, but in America and certainly in Germany because of the, some of the strange things that are happening in Germany, um, about discipline in the church and um, a sense of stability in the church. But why does Jesus in chapter 18 of, of, of Matthew talk about dealing with conflict the way that he does, where it's this, this increase from just you talk to them to groups of people talk to them to the uh, sinning um, member of the church to uh, he handed over to the bishops and to the Holy Father, which is, I'm saying, is my interpretation, which I think is pretty consistent with the Catholic interpretation for 20 centuries and what um, the text, the gospel text actually means. But here's what it's really rooted in. It's rooted in the Gospel of John, chapter 15, verses um, 13 and 15 to 16. And uh, you'll remember this because... Um, God doesn't call us as slaves. We are not called to be slaves of God the Father, of Jesus, or of Mary. Uh, we're called to friendship. And here's what Jesus says. No one has greater love than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. I no longer call you servants any longer, but I have called you friends. 
because I have made known to you everything that I have heard from my Father. Because in friendship, there is a, a sharing, it's a communion. At the heart of the Catholic faith is an understanding of friendship that we call communion. Through baptism, we enter into Christ's life. Through confirmation, we receive our share of God's Holy Spirit. And then in the sacrament of Eucharist, we experience communion with God, uh, body and soul. Um, and this is the deepest form of friendship, but it's the language that we have uh, to describe this deep sense of communion. C.S. Lewis wrote a famous book, which is always worth reading and rereading. And it's based on the Greek language uh, and the many words that the Greeks have to describe love. Um, it is, a, I think, a fairly common criticism of English that we say we love pizza, we love parents, we love our spouse, and we love God, it's, and we love our country. It's not all the same kind of thing. Um, it does capture that the human heart is made for love, uh, but love is experienced and admits of different, uh, different qualities depending on the nature of love. And so the fundamental love that we're made for is love of God the Father. And then it's expressed in love of neighbor, which can be friendship or uh, love of country, um, you know, uh, charity. These are all ex uh, different ways that we uh, come up with understandings how we're called to love our neighbor. But here's what C.S. Lewis says in The Four Loves about friendship. We possess each friend, not less, but more, as the number of those with whom we share him increases. And this friendship exhibits a glorious nearness by resemblance to heaven itself, with a very multitude of the blessed, which no man can number, increases the fruition which each has of God. For every soul, seeing God in his own, in his or own, her own way, doubtless communicates that unique vision to all the rest. And so that the human experience of the love of God gives us St. Francis of Assisi, a warrior who goes to nurture the lepers. It also gives us St. Joan of Arc, uh, who is a, a shepherdess who goes to lead the armies of France. It gives us St. Joseph, who is the foster father of the Lord, who is just a humble uh, handyman. It gives us St. Therese of Lisieux, which grew up in a very tightly knit but highly strung family, but also uh, came to this terrific insight about how the littlest things in our life done with extraordinary love is really the little way to God. So friendship. Why is it so important in the church? Well, because this is who God is, right? Um, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, three divine persons. And there is an order in that relationship, Father and Son, and then the Holy Spirit proceeds through the Father and the Son to us. And so God the Father is not the God the Son. God the Son is not the Holy Spirit. They all have their place in the Godhead. They are all equally God, declaring of the one substance. Um, but they all find in each other the beauty of 
playing in this story that is very much about uh, the life that God the Father shares with the world and then takes joy in. So the friendship of Harry Potter and his friends, um, it's kind of chaotic because it's kind of human. There's fear. They know there's traitors in them. Um, but there's friendships where there's conflicts and you work through conflicts. There's friendships where there's uh, domination, all on the Harry Potter Hogwarts world. So talk to your kids who read Harry Potter and ask them whether they would rather belong to Gryffindor as their dorm or whether they'd rather belong to Slytherin. And regardless of what their answer is, would they rather be at Hogwarts and with Professor Dumbledore, or would they rather be a Death Eater, a Death Eater riding around on black brooms with Voldemort? Because these are all groups. There's all this kind of community, but one is built around the beauty of human relationship. The other is built around the domination of one dark character, Tom Riddle. You know, it's interesting that Professor Dumbledore and I. I've read, I, no, I haven't read any Harry Potter books, but I've watched all the movie. But I love reading people writing about Harry Potter. And so uh, this is this line that comes from a, the Harry Potter stories, and it's about um, why Voldemort is Voldemort. Because he used to be a student, if you remember, at, um, at Hogwarts. Uh, his name was Tom Riddle. Now he's known as Lord Voldemort. But here's what Professor Dumbledore, who knew him, said about him. I trust that you also noticed that Tom Riddle was already highly self-sufficient, secretive, and apparently friendless. He preferred to operate alone. You'll hear many of his Death Eaters claiming that they're in his confidence, that they alone are close to him, even understand him. They're deluded. Lord Voldemort has never had a friend nor do I believe that he has ever wanted one. There is a cost to friendship. There's a cost to community, especially when you have so many different personalities. And that cost is conflict. And it's how it is that you deal with conflict in the community. And Matthew's chapter 18 has given us the importance of forgiveness, seeking the lost sheep, being humble, um, not being hypocritical, but that there is an order to conflict. Talk to your friend. Take one or more witnesses. If that doesn't um, uh, come up with a, a, a solution. And then after that, ask the church to judge it. And then, ultimately, the one who binds and looses, the pope and his bishops, they're the ones to decide. How Catholic are you when you reject the authority that Christ gave to Peter and the apostles? Um, Sometimes you just say, maybe I'm the one that's wrong, and you move on. This has been another edition of Oral Valley Catholic.